0: You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Anthony Eckenbola. He's having a show at Sean Kelly now. Uh, Anthony, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you. Thanks for
1: having me, Bernard.
0: Anthony, I went to your show, which I love. It's We're talking on September 21st, and it's running through October 22nd of this year. Um, Let's talk about it. The the name of the show is Natural Beauty. There's there's two, you know, installations really, the the work uh on the main floor and of course the work downstairs. But let's start with the title because that seems to to speak volumes in in a way itself. The title Natural uh, Beauty. Can you tell me a little bit about that title? So,
1: when I was thinking about the show and and kind of what what it was going to be, I had started to reference the show i did last year and i kind of wanted to continue that discussion which was called magic city and it was a show that was focused on the conversation around fetish as it relates to objects and usually fetishes associate associated with you know um this quote-unquote primitive kind of aesthetic so for me it was interesting um, bringing that conversation into a more contemporary context and looking at, like, how we kind of fetishize objects that we kind of use um, in our day-to-day, whether it be jewelry or cars or even the idea of, like, a amethyst crystal or a lucky penny or a um, clover. So, um that was kind of the genesis of it. But natural beauty kind of comes from the again, the value that these objects hold um without really being altered. And I think it was an interesting way to talk about the ready-made or about found object as like how can you appreciate this thing um as it exists naturally.
0: So let's talk about those objects. Um in the in the first floor, we see these um, beautiful works that are all different colors. They're cloth, feels like fabric. Um, but this is very specific. This is this is one of the objects that's fetishized, right? This is um, what's known as a do rag, right? It's a head covering that that's been used in in part because of, as you're saying, uh, how it's been fetishized. Is is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, and I had been making these works for a while, so I think that that is a conversation that is attached to the material. And of that, um, you know, there is a way in which, you know, America and which the world kind of looks at durag that is different from what its primary utility is, which is really like a... The hair garment um, used in the maintenance of, of hair. So for me, there is something interesting about um, the perception and how it's viewed depending on the gaze that it's under. Um, but then there's also just something beautiful about that material for me in the way that it has a certain sheen and that the light Kind of like moves over it, and there's something. Even when I was considering using the material early, earlier, that was just um, a, a beauty that that the object held. That you know, even aesthetically, outside of um, the context it was put in, you could just appreciate it for um, its color and its vibrancy.
0: I agree. Yeah, the colors are just
1: gorgeous in these, and and
0: and in the works that that we're discussing, it seemed to be there was um, almost two different approaches. There's one where we see kind of uh, folds. It almost feels like a parachute-like material when I first saw it, right? Something very kind of uh, three-dimensional. And there's other works that look almost like like flags. There's lines in them. They're, they're, I mean, they're both just as, as maybe minimalist in a sense, but um, they seem to go back between like two very specific aesthetics. One that, that, yeah, to my mind, looks like lines, looks like a flag, looks like a whole number of associations, and another that really looks um, almost like uh, folded clothes, uh, you know, has much more dimension. Um, since you're going back and forth between these kind of specifically, do, do these two approaches have very different meanings for you?
1: Um, not really different meanings. I think it's more about experimentation and trying to find how I can pull more information from the material. So being able to kind of focus on the different parts of it and, and seeing how I can set up more, um, I wouldn't even say rules, but like kind of like setting up different parameters by which I make the work to achieve another outcome is is kind of the goal with that. The stripes are new because I kind of wanted to see what would happen if I was just using the tail. And even though I kind of consider all of it to be somewhat of a minimalist approach, there was something about lines specifically in art history and artists that have worked with that from Sean Scully to, Ian Davenport, uh, Robert Irwin, that that was interesting in, like, that pursuit of, you know, kind of the same line of experimentation. But also, I just not worked with the material in that way. So there is something about getting that outcome, you know, sewing it that way that, you know, I was like, oh, this this could be a new
0: direction. Well, as you say, there's this reference to, to history, right? You've talked about, like, ready-mades at the beginning in that relationship to the material. And then in these two, and it seems pertinent to this exhibit and your, your whole um, way of working, that you're referencing history, but, but the history itself. And, you know, stop me if I'm going too far, but the history itself is kind of fetishized, right? We're talking about a sort of Western history of of, of certain types of artists that have been um, that have come forward in in the last fifty years, largely white artists, of course. So, so just just to ask a little bit more about that kind of historical reference that you're kind of remaking and um, and kind of speaking to, right? Minimalist, color field, perhaps painters, as well as uh, conceptual work like like Duchamp's ready mades.
1: I mean, I think there's a reason also why, and I mean, I'll start by saying that when I make the work, it truly, I try not to reference these things. I know that the work is going to be in conversation with art history and those who came before me anyway, but my motive when I'm doing it is really not thinking about how can it be in conversation, but not ignoring that, I think there's an interesting play where that goat in the show comes in um, because you have the term, you know, and it's abbreviation used um, as it relates with sport and competition. So I feel like the fetish, not only of a goat itself and the ubiquitous meaning it has, but also the abbreviation as it relates to how we fetishize idols and stars and people from the history is kind of appropriate when talking about that art history. Um, Because I I think there is some reference to the greats and how we consider that. And and maybe um, the goat, I don't, I mean, the way that the piece downstairs is set up in the show is um, there's this big long piece. Um, that is mimicking the color palette of of the piece is mimicking this goat that sits across it, so it creates this um, what I kind of like to see as the smeared image, where the goat becomes abstracted in the com in the composition, and it's been called a self portrait. So there's something about there's something about the I, I wouldn't say myself. Kind of taking on the position of the goat, but I even the fact that that could be it could be read that way. I think is the kind of cheeky move um, that kind of speaks on the competition or the sport element of art as I kind of look at at these people from our history.
0: That's great. I'd love to talk about that, that piece more. Um, really interesting, so interesting what you're saying. So the piece downstairs, which you're calling a, a, a self-portrait really, there's a, there's a huge long panel. Um, and then there's a, as you're saying, like a stuffed goat sitting across from it. Uh, so yeah, let's jump a little more into this particular piece because it's, uh, it's, it's one of the most dramatic pieces in the show, it has an entire room to itself along with its goat. So there's a, are you saying there's kind of a conversation? You're talking about yourself as the goat looking at history in that, in that work. I mean, there's so many, it looks like there's so many references in here and I imagine this is a, a very important piece to you because it's, um, it's, it's enormous, right? This is, this is a kind of a almost heroic size work.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is one of the bigger works I've made to date. Um, when I started it, I had had that goat in the last show, but I kind of took that moment between the goat and its, um, like, staring at the piece. I, I isolated it from the show and brought it to the Sean Kelly show. So I think at its core, you know, it was still this conversation around fetish and, and the natural beauty, and even the way we kind of look at animals and all we'll say, oh, that." coat is so good or you know like we apply that same kind of terminology on onto animals as we kind of I, I don't I mean I think there's a lot that can kind of be talked about around the goat and that's why I like it I think for me it was just like I like taxidermy in general I've kind of had that being element I think for this show, it was interesting to have the GOAT kind of dictate what that bigger work would be in terms of palette and and the color scheme and working from that direction. But I also like that there's this level of contrast between something that's super, like, produced, like a a ready-made durag, and then you, you have the GOAT and, you know... You can set up this conversation where people don't really know what the connection is, but you can start to make them. um So I think that was also I, – I liked how open it was, but I, I also liked that it kind of branched out into all these conversations from competition to the idea of that same goat becoming a ready-made through the pro- process of harvesting, you know, the – Um, wool on it you know to make like a cashmere sweater and you know the process of products being beauty beautiful but also the natural world being beautiful and transition of things from the natural world into this very kind of um, commercial space um, and and the transformation of of what is beautiful so or, or things are beautiful because of what they can produce or bring about. So that piece kind of is a, more of a conversation, but I, I think I like that there's an element of the work that's left up to the viewer's interpretation, and, and I think that just re- reiterates um, perspective as it deals with the ready-made and kind of day-to-day objects that we come in contact with.
0: I like that. It's such a fascinating piece, and and I mean, for me, I also had a different, um, another layer of reading it, which which I'm not sure this was intended. When I first came to the show and read a little bit about it, and, and the title "Natural Beauty," and when I began looking at that piece, and and and, and the tones, this is kind of like a variety of beige tones. It's it struck me as, uh, I, I think it reminded me of uh, like early Ellen Gallagher paintings where they were these kind of minimalist tones, almost like Agnes Martin, but it was also a f- like white flesh tone, right? It was, um, she was talking about, among other things, like those crayons and crayola boxes that used to be called flesh tone, but were were pink, right? We're, were, were Caucasian, we're, were white skinned. Um, which, of course, is a variety of tones. Was that also something you had in mind in looking at this? Because this is such a different palette than the rest of the show, which is kind of blazing with color in most cases. This is all a variety of kind of tans
1: and and, and pinks that we're looking at. I mean, I will say um, as I've been making the work, I've been trying to lean into what I kind of see as more of a mature palette versus like some of the more high chroma palettes I've made over time. I think that just comes with the sourcing of material and being able to be more intentional about how I'm using color. But um, when I think originally it was more the color of the goat versus, like, me thinking about flesh or even, like, landscape. It wasn't until I did the show and people started telling me, oh, you know, these look like, um, I forgot what they call them, but, like, these walls of like rock and and you see the layer throughout the earth oh and somebody else you know I'd mentioned the flesh tones and I started to kind of again just like all of the connections that we even have to certain palettes so for me it was prompted by the goat and really just trying to mimic that color but um I feel like now as I'm looking at it sometimes I'm like oh I could give it this title or i could see it in this context so i kind of like that it's been evolving already yeah
0: that's uh, so interesting the way that that happens with work and and the goat to go back to the the goat one more time i know this reference is you know uh rauschenberg combine but of course the goat means something very different to you right you're nigerian american
1: and this goat also
0: has a, a different kind of significance for you
1: Yeah, I've always really been, um, at least since I moved to Nigeria when I was 13, like, I had always kind of just seen goats around, and there's something very informal about the presence of a goat, like, just in the space. Um, I think, you know, the ubiquitous meaning of a goat, like, There are all these values it has, and I think that that makes it this very kind of universal symbol of a lot of things. But I think from my Nigerian end of things, it was something that was just also, like, very casual and playful, um, and it wasn't necessarily too deep outside of, um, again, just, like, the familiarity of what it was. There are also all these, like, really supernatural stories around goats in West Africa and, like, shape-shifting and, and all this stuff, too, that I thought was pretty interesting and also tied into this conversation of the self-portrait and me potentially, you know, maybe shape-shifting into this goat or, or that goat being a person. I love that. That's such a nice way to... To finish talking about that, as
0: as you possibly shape-shifting or the goat shape-shifting, I know that's just a kind of small reference, but that takes us into like a whole different realm that's really about transformation of some kind, which is, you know, another kind of giant issue, right?
1: Well, transformation in the work or as an individual or... Yeah, well, as
0: an individual, I was thinking, you know, this idea of, of stories about goats, mythic stories about goats, you know, going through transformations... Um, that relates to the whole sort of uh, bag of alchemy and, and archetypes and what it means for for us to change, essentially. And and, and that's kind of a loaded question as as well. You know, how, how how what what do those stories of the goats mean? That I don't know anything about. You just began to mention them, but that sounds like a fascinating kind of realm of narratives in itself.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... It is. I think it's also narratives that we kind of naturally have around just as, as as humans that we kind of apply to things to try and understand them better. And I feel like that's where that um that kind of like first level of of I feel like it's important for work to have that um versus it just kind of like remaining this this one thing. And I think that there are certain things that are easier to kind of work with when you it comes to brainstorming or like webbing out ideas versus other things. I
0: agree, I agree. Anthony, um, gorgeous show. Um, 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 it's up to the 22nd of October for those who are listening to it before then. And uh, I, I want to ask you one more question that's off topic. Uh, what are you reading at the moment? I'm always curious what everyone's reading.
1: So my sister, I actually just visited her in Chicago and she gave me a book um, by a Nigerian author by the name of Igoni Barrett called Black Ass. And it's basically a book about, I I literally just started it, um, I got it a couple days ago, but it's basically kind of looking at the journey of a guy who is Nigerian And I believe he's trying to get, like, alone, and he wakes up and he's turned white, except um, his his butt, like, is the only part of his body that is um, not white. So he's trying to go through all these processes of, like, changing, um, you know, like, having his ass basically become white as well, so... my sister had told me it. I just thought it was kind of a really interesting prompt. Um, and I hadn't really heard of that kind of like story from a Nigerian author, like this kind of absurdist kind of style. So, um, that's, that's what I've started.
0: Anthony, I want to thank you so much for talking to me today. It's really been a pleasure and I wish you well with this gorgeous show that, uh, that is up as we speak. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.